Well, dear friends, in the last message with Apollos, we wrapped up the second mission journey of the Apostle Paul. And in this message, the third mission journey begins. Uh, in fact, it has already begun previously. In verse 23, in Acts 18 of verse 23, I mean, Acts 18 and verse 23, and having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That is the beginning of the third mission journey. So on the map that I gave you on the back of the outline there, uh, you can see that Paul begins the third missionary journey from the city of Antioch, right? Antioch is always home base for the Apostle Paul. And then he immediately travels by land this time to the cities of Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Those are the cities he planted, the churches he planted on his first mission journey. And in every mission journey, he returns to those four cities. So this is the beginning of the third mission journey. Now, uh, that's the region in verse 23 that we just read. The cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Those are, that's the Galatian region and Phrygia. So maybe he didn't go just to those four cities, but whatever, he did some ministry in that area. Then in, at the end of verse, or chapter 18, we had the story of Apollos. Remember, there's a bit of a parenthesis there. And, and, uh, and Luke leaves Paul in Galatia, in the region of Galatia, and he says, it's as if he says to, the, to, to his audience, right, hang on, there's something I have to tell you about a man named Apollos. And they go back to Ephesus, and it's in Ephesus, remember, that Aquila and Priscilla, and they, have, they meet this man named Apollos. And that was the sermon last Sunday morning. But when we get to chapter 19 and verse 1, we have now the... Uh, we're, we're returning to Paul again, right? So the focus of, the, of, the, uh, of Luke's history here goes back to Paul. So it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, remember that Apollos received a call from the church in Corinth, and he accepted that call, and he began to labor there as their pastor. And Paul passed through the upper country, so that would be Galatia. You can see that on that map there. And he came to Ephesus. So we also remember that this was a promise that Paul had made. In Acts 18, verse 21, you'll remember that uh, Paul had said there, uh, remember the, the Jews in Corinth had asked him to stay, but verse 21 says, taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul has promised, I'm not, I said Corinth, I meant Ephesus. So Paul has promised to return to Ephesus, to the Jews there, and now he keeps that promise. By the way, I just can't help but uh, reflect as well. Remember on the second mission journey, when Paul went through those cities of uh, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch, right? And then he wanted to go south. He wanted to go to Ephesus. But remember that it says there that uh, uh, God blocked the way. God closed the door on that. God said, no, not Ephesus. Remember then Paul decided, well, maybe I'll go north. I'll go up into Bithynia. And remember again, God closed that door. Remember that sermon, open doors, closed doors. So Paul, in great probably confusion with many questions, ends up at Troas. And it's there that God leads him to go across the Aegean Sea to, into Macedonia. But now Paul gets through those four cities and the door is open. And Paul goes to the city of Ephesus. 
So he keeps his promise. He goes to the city of Ephesus. Apollos has probably already gone by this time. Apollos is already established as a, the pastor of the church in Corinth. And Paul comes walking into the city of Ephesus and no doubt embraces Aquila and Priscilla, again, his dear friends, and, uh, and he gets down to business in Ephesus. And then we have this, this difficult story, and it is a confusing story. No matter what uh, denomination of Christians you may belong to, everybody struggles with this story. There's just some... Again, Luke is giving such a, a blow-by-blow account, right, that sometimes you just wish you could know more details, right? But we can't, so we have to do our best to kind of piece together what, what, is these, what are these 12 men that Paul meets in Ephesus? So I really would like to go just verse by verse in a very close reading of these verses and try to establish what's happening in Acts 19, in these first verses of Acts 19. So Paul finally arrives in Ephesus, and we read in verse 1 that he found some disciples. You see that at the very end of verse 1. He found some disciples. And so that's our first question then. If, if we just read this verse, we would immediately conclude that these are Christians. These are believers. That's what the word disciples always means in the book of Acts. It always refers to those who have put their trust in Jesus, have been baptized into the name of Christ, and are now Christians and are, are members of some church, and, and that's, the, uh, that's what a disciple is. But we click, quickly come to realize that that may not be the case. Because we see Paul's questions. And in verse 2, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this question, more than likely, friends, was not just, uh, you know, again, when we read this account, we, we get the impression that Paul uh, shook hands with each of the 12 of them and, and then just said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? But again, probably, knowing Paul, this was, you know, he, he came to the church in Ephesus, he began to minister there, and over time, he got to know these 12 men, these 12 people. And in conversation with them, I don't believe this was the only question he asked them. I'm sure he asked them about their faith in Christ. Did they, you know, how did they become Christians? How did they come to the church? No doubt, uh, I, I, well, I don't say no doubt. I, I'll say that likely these brothers had just joined the church, had just come. It's hard to believe that they had been members of that church for some time. But probably they had just come and, and were gathering with the Christians in Ephesus. And Paul, in conversation, asked them, as any pastor would, as any elder would, a variety of questions. However, there's one question that kind of uh, stands out. And it's this question about the Holy Spirit. Again, in the course of conversation with these people, Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now that question puzzles us as well, because later Paul will clearly teach that every person who believes in the gospel receives the Holy Spirit the moment they believe the gospel. So again, we have to understand that this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, that shouldn't lead us to believe that it's possible that one could believe the gospel but not have the Holy Spirit. Paul says that, by one, or that with one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's the body of Christ. When a person believes, they receive the Holy Spirit. So we have to believe that Paul is simply asking them about the ministry of the Spirit in their life. Do you know, are you walking in the power of the Spirit day by day, as Paul teaches in many other places? 
It is impossible to live a life of sanctification without the power of the Spirit working within us and, and, and working with us so that we fight against sin and we live a life to God's glory. This is Paul's question. And the answer that they give is even more astounding. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now here, we, we must be, we, we, it's impossible to believe that these people could not have heard of the existence of the Holy Spirit. Later, we find that these men had been, that they were disciples of John the Baptizer. And, and remember what the message of, of John was, right? That, uh, behold, I baptize in you water, but after me there comes one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So these men must have known about the Holy Spirit. So the question here isn't that they had never heard of the existence of the Holy Spirit. But very likely the question or the answer they give is, no, we have not even heard whether the Holy Spirit has been given. In other words, these men had not even heard that the Spirit of God had been poured out. In fact, having been John's disciples and having been taught by John that the Spirit of God was going to come and he was going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit and in fire, right? The, the, uh, Christ was going to pour out his Spirit Upon, the, upon his people, and they were going to be baptized with the Spirit and in fire, they were probably waiting and expecting for that. However, they had never heard that it had happened yet. I think that's how we have to understand the answer to this question. No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And again, there might even be a little hyperbole there in their, in their answer. You know, not that we literally should take them to believe that they never heard of the Holy Spirit. That's impossible to believe, even if they were just Jews. Right? Even David, right, in, in the Psalms, says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Certainly even Jews knew about the Holy Spirit. So we have to understand that their answer there is that we have not even heard whether the Holy Spirit has come, whether he's been poured out upon the church, whether the church has been baptized in the Spirit of God. That is, the, their, quest, that is their answer. This also leads us to go back then to to the question that I answered in verse 1. Who were these disciples? Now, I told you that the word disciples almost or always in the book of Acts refers to Christian believers. But again, here, when we read this conversation between Paul and these 12 believers, or these 12 disciples as they're called, we must conclude that these are not even Christians. That here, the word disciples is, is not referring to Christian believers. Why? Well, first of all, again, it's just impossible to imagine that Christian believers would not have heard about Pentecost. That was the defining, originating event of the whole church, at least the church as it was Jew and Gentile in the book of Acts. How could they not have heard of Pentecost? So when we read Paul's question to them and their response, we are led to back up and say, you know, disciples there must not mean disciples of Christ. Now we have further confirmation of that when we find later that they are disciples of John. But again, that's a little uh, confusing at first because when we read disciples, we immediately think of disciples of Christ. That's how the word is always used in the book of Acts. But here, again, in this particular context, right, that shows you, by the way, how important it is to understand the context Right, of any particular uh, word usage, the context has to explain to us what the word means. The word disciples here means these are disciples of John. 
who have, for whatever reason, come into the city of Ephesus and have visited the church. They are now gathering with the church. And when Paul comes and begins to inquire, begins to ask them, right, they do believe in Jesus. They believe in a Messiah. You can think of Apollos previously, who had a similar faith, right? But they have not yet come to a full understanding of the Christian faith. And they do not even understand that Pentecost, that the Spirit has been poured out upon the church. So the conclusion then is that these are not a Christians. So children, on your notes there, it says, why was Paul so surprised when he met these 12 men? The answer is because they knew very little about Pentecost. They didn't know about the pouring out of the Spirit. So in some way, shape, or form, you can write that down there, right? They did not yet know that the Spirit of God had been poured out on the church, which happened on the day of Pentecost. So my conclusion is that these men are not Christians. By the way, you will find many other, uh, if you read different commentaries on this, you'll find many other interpretations. People think they are Christians, or some people think they're very immature Christians. So again, I don't be dogmatic about this, but as I understand it, these are disciples of John who are looking for the Messiah and who are expecting a baptism of the Spirit and just have not yet been made aware that this has happened. And that's why I say, even though there's really nothing in the text that says this, my own opinion is that these people must have just recently joined the, the church of Ephesus. Or maybe not even joined it in the sense that we think of membership, but are gathering with the church at Ephesus. So we come to the third verse then. And here, Paul asks, again, such a very puzzling question to us. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, uh, baptism... Uh, for uh, into what were you baptized? That's just that's like asking a question. Whose disciple are you, right? When you are baptized, you take on the name and you you come under you might say the teaching and the the leadership of your teacher. So to be baptized into the name of Paul, right? You would say I'm a I'm a Pauline person, right? And of course Paul hates that idea, right? That you'd be baptized into the name of Paul. He very vigorously writes against that in, in his letter to Corinth. But, you know, if you're, a, if you're a disciple of John, you're baptized into the name of John. And, of course, the real thing, right, is to be baptized into the name of Jesus, to be a disciple of Christ. At any rate, Paul asks this question. But our question is, Paul, why does Paul ask this question? Why does Paul ask this question about whose disciple are you? Or uh, into what, then, were you baptized? Well, again, Lots of thought goes into this question. I, I think that the reason Paul asked this question is because in the book of Acts, we know that baptism with water is always a sign of a greater reality, right? Which is that baptism of the Spirit as happened on the day of Pentecost, as happened in the house of Cornelius, right? When the Spirit of God came down and baptized the believers there. And as happens in the life of every believer when they first believe in Christ. So when Paul says, into whose name were you baptized? He's asking, you know, if you were baptized as a Christian and you received the sign of water cleansing you, how is it possible that you don't know about the Holy Spirit's baptism and Him cleansing you, which first happened on the day of Pentecost, which was repeated at Cornelius? Again, by, by repeated, I mean it was repeated with all these visible signs, right? Of course, it's repeated invisibly in the life of every Christian when they, believe in the, when they believe in Christ. But how is it possible that you could have been baptized in water 
and not know the greater reality to which it points, that it's a sign of. I think that's, what you, that's what's behind Paul's question. That's why he asked this. If you were baptized as Christians, and, and I mean, I'm assuming you have been baptized as Christians, because after all, you're gathering with the Christians here. Well, come to find out they had not been baptized as Christians, right? And that's their answer. In verse 3, at the very end of verse 3, they said, we are, we, and they said, into John's baptism. In other words, we were baptized with John the baptizer's repentance, baptism, his baptism unto repentance. We were baptized as disciples of John. Well, there's the answer, isn't it? Now it's all clear to Paul. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit by being baptized with John's baptism. You cannot be baptized into, into becoming a disciple of John and think to receive the Holy Spirit, that blessed baptism that joins us to Christ. And this is what Paul is now going to explain to them. In verse 4, Paul, it's, it's, if I could paraphrase this, Paul says, let me tell you what John's baptism was all about. It's wonderful that you were baptized with John's baptism, but you're misunderstanding John's baptism. John's baptism was never meant to make disciples of John. You've got that wrong. You look at verse 4. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. John's baptism, my friends, was kind of a preparatory baptism. It was kind of a, 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 a thing to get you ready for the coming of Christ. It was a bridge between the old dispensation, the old covenant, and the new covenant coming in the person and work of Christ and with the outpouring of the Spirit. John's baptism was a bridge to sort of um, to testify that, that you, you are a person who is looking for that coming. And again, when I, when I think of Apollos, I think Apollos probably did understand this. Apollos did understand John's baptism correctly, because remember, Apollos too was a disciple of John. And Apollos understood that John's baptism in and of itself is not an end. It's not, the, it's not where you're trying to go. It's, it's not the end goal. John's baptism is just a pointer. There's some, someone else coming. Look for him. There comes one after me. He is the uh, one who will baptize you in the fire and with Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that you need. But see, the, these 12 men thought that John's baptism was enough for them. They had been baptized into John's baptism and that was sufficient. They were content with that. They didn't realize that it was pointing them to something else. And so Paul comes and says, brothers, I think you've misunderstood John's baptism. By the way, you could think about our, our uh, sermons on the sacraments, right? And John's baptism, very clearly, right in line, isn't it, with the sacraments? It meant to point us to Christ, right? And, uh, and so Paul says, brothers, you've misunderstood John's baptism. John's baptism was meant to lead you to the feet of the one who was going to come after him, to the Messiah, to the Christ. That's the real purpose of John's baptism. And so I have to believe, my friends, again, I'm, I'm filling in details here, aren't I? But I, I'm trying to do it uh, in, in keeping with what the text teaches us. That at this point, Paul would have said to them the same thing that he said to every, every inquirer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And again, my friends, the glorious truth of the gospel went open for these people, just as it went open for Apollos in the previous in the previous chapter. 
Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, my whole salvation. And Paul says, come, brothers, put your trust in this one. This is Jesus. He's the Messiah King. He's the one that even John the Baptist, John the Baptist didn't want you to become his disciple. He'd be appalled at the thought. But John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And now, brothers, believe in him. Put your trust in Jesus. The same thing that he said to the jailer. Behold the Lamb of God, said John the Baptist, who takes away the sins of the world. And once again, I have to believe that the experience of coming to Christ and seeing their sins taken away, like that publican of old, and being saved. And again, in, in light of what we're taught in, in, in Acts, uh, their families would have come with them. Their families would have come with them if they had a family. And they would have believed in Christ, and they would have been saved. Verse 5 continues, When they heard this, and again, there's so much wrapped up in that. When they heard this, again, imagine the joy, the, the exhilaration of hearing the gospel and of understanding it. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you see Paul? There he takes those 12 men. After them, their wives and their children, if they had families. And he brings them to water, whatever it may have been. And they stand there in that river, that lake, whatever it may have been. And the blessed waters of baptism is poured over them. They are immersed, they are drenched in that blessed water, that cleansing water, which is nothing in and of itself, but which is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming down and cleansing them. That must have been a wonder. That was an unforgettable day for them in their life as they stood, stood there and were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice that they didn't have to take a, a, a class of any kind, Right? It didn't say, like, you know, once you understand things more clearly, once you're able to make a more credible profession of faith, we'll baptize you, right? No, it's as soon as they profess faith in Christ. How much could they have known at that point, right? Their, their understanding must have been so slight. But Paul immediately says, you're a disciple of a new master. No more John the Baptist. Now you're a disciple of Jesus, and you receive the sign of that baptism. By the way, if I go back to that word disciples, it seems difficult to believe that if they really were Christians, that they would not have already been baptized in that church. Maybe, well, not by Paul, but by some other elder in the church. They would have been baptized. And so when I see that Paul baptizes them, that leads me to believe that they were not yet Christians, or at least that they had not yet come to that place where they professed faith in Christ as a Christian. They still saw themselves as John's disciples, and so when Paul baptizes them, he baptizes them into the name of Christ. Now, again, that would have been a baptism in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. But now you're coming under the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood. You're being saved as a Christian. So they are baptized. But then we read on, and we continue to read in verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, Pentecost again. Because these brothers had never even heard that the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the church. And now God says, I'll make it clear to you again. I'll make it clear. And these supernatural gifts come down upon these men. They begin to speak in tongues, right? 
they, uh, they, they begin to prophesy. And, and prophesying there means that they would have received direct revelations from God. Right? It, it doesn't mean that they would have, they would, not what I'm doing now, right? Taking the word of God and explaining it. It means that they would have received direct revelations from God. That's what prophesying means. Direct messages from God himself. They prophesied and they spoke in tongues. And it was Pentecost again. Just as Pentecost happened on, well, the day of Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 2. We notice it happened again in Samaria when the Samaritans came to believe under the ministry of Philip. And then in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the household of Cornelius, we saw these, these uh, again, these supernatural gifts being given, speaking in tongues and prophesying and things like that. But now, again, and I believe this is the last time in the book of Acts that we see these supernatural, visible signs happening of men speaking in tongues and prophesying. In keeping with the fact that this is now a repetition of Pentecost, I would have to believe that these tongues that they're speaking in were real, recognizable languages. Different than what was happening in the Corinthian church, where they spoke a language that was no recognizable language, uh, a, a tongue speaking that was their own private prayer kind of language, uh, as it's described there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But again, assuming and I'm assuming there, the text doesn't actually say, but I'm assuming that since this is a repetition of Pentecost, these were real, recognizable languages that these men spoke at this time. And so Pentecost happens again. And God in his mercy makes clear to these people that the Spirit of God has come. And they now are given to experience it in a very visible and extraordinary way. My friends, you know that this passage here is... Uh, one of the most uh, appealed to verses in support of Pentecostal teaching. This is the rock of Pentecostalism, if I can call it that. Because they say that you have a clear example here of Christian believers. Again, they understand the word disciples as Christians, in verse 1. Christian believers who had not yet received the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. And they would say that is now a normative pattern for everybody in the Christian life. For instance, in our last topic and discussion night on Wednesday, uh, we talked about Pastor Lee Cummings' book. Again, uh, with all due respect for my brother Lee Cummings and all the wonderful work that he's done in the church, he's written a book called The School of the Spirit. And in that book, if you read that book, you, you would quickly come to the realization, I'm missing something. My Christian life is not yet complete. I, I've believed in Christ, my sins are forgiven, but there's another step, there's something else for me that God has, that God even wants to give me, but I don't have it. And what that would be then is these extraordinary gifts, these speaking in tongues, and uh, Pastor Cummings defends the, the kind of speaking in tongues that you see in the Corinthian church, right? This private kind of, uh, I don't mean to be disparaging here, but to us it would sound like gibberish, right? It, you wouldn't be able to understand anything of what you're saying. Right? And that's why Paul is not in favor of them using this in the public worship services in Corinth, because it doesn't edify anybody. But Paul's not against it, right? He's, he, he even does it himself, he says. But at any rate, the Pentecostals say that here you have the normative Christian experience, that you believe the gospel, and then in a later stage in your Christian life, you come to have the full experience of the Spirit of God, which enables you to speak in tongues, and that this is something we should seek. In fact, Pastor Cummings has in that book, I think, Oh, I don't remember what it was. Uh, 
six or seven steps to take to, to get this gift that, so that you can lay claim to this extra gift that God has for you. Just like these believers in Acts 19 uh, didn't have the full experience of the Spirit of God. In fact, Pastor Cummings asked over and over in that book, have you received the Spirit of God since you believed? And his understanding of that question is that, yes, you may very well be a Christian, but have you come to this level of your Christianity in your walk with God, that you've received these extraordinary gifts? Four things I want to say very quickly about that approach. First, his interpretation of that passage assumes that this story is meant to be a normative pattern for all believers. That in itself is not clear. We know that this was a unique time in the history of the Christian church. And so to, to extrapolate from this, let's just assume that his interpretation is correct for now. To extrapolate from that passage that this is now a normative thing that all Christian believers should seek already has, you might say, the marks of some, uh, at least we, we, we tend to question that. Why? Because nothing else is said about that in all the rest of Scripture. You read the letter to James, from James. You read the first, second, third John. You read Paul's letters, even in his letter to Corinth. In fact, Paul does the opposite in his letter to Corinth. He says, yes, tongue speaking is fine for your own private devotional life. He even says, I do it myself. But that's all. It, it shouldn't be in the public life of the church because it doesn't edify. And it's really not even the best gift. It's not even the best gift. There's better gifts. And Paul nowhere asks the church to try to speak in tongues. Seek to do these six things so that you can speak in tongues. That's why already we're, we're, we're questioning that this is a normative pattern in the life of a Christian is something that we would doubt. Second, uh, I already said this, that uh, he, uh, Pastor Cummings and the Pentecostal interpretation assumes that these disciples were Christians. I have a very difficult time, and actually most commentators, even some Pentecostal commentators, say that they're probably not Christians. It doesn't make sense that Paul would then baptize them again. And it doesn't make sense that they never heard of Pentecost and what happened on that glorious day. So very likely these are not Christians. Pastor Cummings insists that these are Christians. Third, uh, the assumption that these tongues, these languages spoken here, were the Corinthian kind of tongues. In other words, the, no, the non-recognizable kind of language. I think that too is, is, is very unlikely. In the book of Acts, if this is a Pentecost, just as what took place in the, in the house of Cornelius, and later with the Samaritans, and then first at Acts chapter 2, these were very likely to be understood as recognizable languages that people could have understood. Just as if I began speaking in Spanish now, those of you who are, have the gift of that language would understand what I'm saying. And then uh, in the fourth place, uh, the assumption is made here that this spirit baptism is always accompanied by these extraordinary gifts. The baptism of the Spirit is always accompanied by these visible, extraordinary kinds of things, such as tongue speaking and prophesying. In Acts 2, of course, they even had uh, flames of fire on their heads and things like that. Um, but again, that, that is an assumption that does not seem to be borne out, but certainly by the rest of the New Testament. And even in this passage, I'll just point out that these men receive these extraordinary gifts not when they're baptized. It's not that when they're baptized, they suddenly receive these gifts. But after they were baptized, Paul took them aside and he laid hands on them. Right? Which is, 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 is usually a sign of receiving the Spirit of God as in, in token of some mission or task that you're going to perform. 
right? Like they laid hands on me when I was ordained into the ministry. It's at that point that the Spirit of God and these extraordinary things came upon them. So, our own understanding of this passage is as I've given it to you. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, we have the explicit teaching of Paul. I want to read that passage. It's so important for understanding these things. And uh, I, wanna, I want you to read this. Because when you have conversations with these people, I think this is really where you have to take your stand. On 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. I'm going to start with verse 12. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, For even as the body, that is the body of Christ, is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by, or I would translate this, for with one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Again, I want to interpret Acts 19 in the light of this very clear teaching of Paul, that every Christian, when they believe in Christ, receives the baptism of the Spirit of God. That may be invisible, it may, it, more than likely it's not something you experience, but for all that, it is the baptism of the Spirit of God. And Paul makes it very clear, double in that verse, right? We were all baptized, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. My friends, I come then to these applications. In the first place, the need for teaching. Teaching is so important. Children, again, if you look at your notes there, teaching is so important in our life because the ideas, there's the blank there, right? The ideas in our mind cause us to act in certain ways. Dear congregation, you must always make that connection that the behavior, the actions, the choices we make are always driven by the ideas in our head. That's the proper order, right? That's the order, uh, well, not the proper order, that is the order. Bad ideas, bad actions. When there are good, when there is truth in our heads, then that translates into good behavior and good actions. And that's why teaching is so important, not just for us as the people of God, that we understand properly the truth, but also on mission fields, especially in mission fields, where the devil is so working hard to, to push people in this direction or in that direction, anything he can do to get people away from the truth as it is in Jesus, to get people away from the truth of Christ. You can be a disciple of this person or of that person, of this preacher or of that pastor. The devil's happy with that as long as you stay away from the truth of the word of God. And that's why we hear missionaries constantly, right? You know on this sheet, right, when I read this in the evening and we pray for these people, it's repeated almost every single time. Pray that God would raise up elders. Pray that God would raise up men and women who can themselves be counselors and teachers and leaders in the church. That's so important. And in the Pentecostal churches, I'm sorry to say there are so many people, sincere Christian believers, who think that somehow their witness is, is weakened because they don't have this or that gift of the Spirit. This is something I would say to my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Is that a biblical mindset? Should I not get into this pulpit and preach because I have not had an experience of the Spirit's power in my life? I can tell you, congregation, I wouldn't get up here very often. 
It's not every day that we have that, that sense that the Spirit of God is empowering us and filling us. But for all that, we still have to go to work. We still have to do the work of the ministry. We still have to represent Christ in this world. But it's a serious error. I don't say it doesn't make them Christians, but it's a serious error in that it has serious consequences in the life of real Christian people who are praying and waiting and looking for some kind of experience, for speaking in tongues, and it doesn't happen. And because of that, they sit still and don't do, they, they don't do the work of the ministry because they feel like the Spirit hasn't empowered them to do it. And so again, teaching is so important, my friends. It's so critical that we understand these ideas well and that we empower and equip missionaries with all that they need to do their work. That's why I'm so excited to see the translation of good, solid, reformed books. That is a work we should support vigorously. What a blessing it is to see the books that we grew up on just took for granted. Haven't you had that experience where you pick up, a book says Louis Burkhoff, you pick it up and it's in Spanish and you can't do a thing with it, right? It's, it's, it's useless for us. But think of all the people in the, in, the, in the world who are now reading those books and benefiting from teaching that we had when we were six years old, right? What a blessing that is. My friends, in the second place, I want to ask you the same question. Have you received the Spirit? Let's stop thinking now for a minute about Pentecostal churches and, and, and how they understand that question, but God addresses that question to you now this morning. Have you received the Holy Spirit? You see, that question in one sense, if we're going to understand that as Paul would understand it, we simply need to back up. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, back up, my friends, and answer the first question. Have you received Christ? Are you a believer in Jesus? Because if you are a believer in Jesus and with true and sincere faith, you've put your trust in Christ, then the Spirit has come from Christ, the ascended King of His church, and He gives gifts to His people. And one of those gifts, the greatest of the gifts, is the Holy Spirit himself who dwells within us and who motivates us and leads us and guides us to live a God-honoring life. And what does that life look like? I want you to take your Bible. If you don't have your Bible open already, please take it. And I want you to turn with me. Because, my friends, this question is so critical, so important. And if you would please turn with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, because I'm not going to ask you this morning, have you, are you speaking in tongues? By the way, if you are speaking in tongues, I have nothing to say against it. I have nothing to say against it. I only have this to say. That's not necessarily a sign that the Spirit of God is indwelling you, because there's a better sign. There's a higher gift. And if you're with me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in verse 1, it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love. Drop down to verse 4. Paul is asking us, God is asking us this morning, do you have the Holy Spirit? Well, my friends, lay your life next to this. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
My friends, this is the yardstick that you should use to measure or that you should use to, to decide this question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Congregation, don't take it for granted this morning. Let's really look into our hearts and examine ourselves. It's so easy to just think, well, the Pentecostals, they have this false understanding. That's easy to do. I think it's even easy to do think, well, do I speak in tongues? Yes, I do speak in tongues, so I must have the Holy Spirit. My friends, this is much more difficult, isn't it? This is a much higher standard. Do you love? That's the answer to the question. That's how, for myself, I answered this question. Do I have the Holy Spirit? And the evidence of the Holy Spirit being in my life and in your life is do you love? And 1 Corinthians 13 lays it out very, very detailed here for us. Patience, kindness, doesn't, isn't jealous, is not brags, not arrogant, and so on and so forth. Congregation, let, let's do this in the power of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit in prayer to the Spirit that he would make us to be honest with ourselves. And to answer that question, do I have the Holy Spirit? My friends, the sad truth is, is that if you are not patient, if you are not kind, if you are not jealous, you need to face the stark reality, the stark truth that maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. You may have grown up in a Christian church. You may have seen yourself all your life to be a believer. You may have used the Lord's Supper a hundred times. But my friends, this is where the rubber meets the road, if I can use that expression this morning. This is the test. This is the, if your life doesn't look like that, now I don't say perfectly, but if in some measure your life does not reflect the truth of what it says here in 1 Corinthians 13, then you have to answer that question honestly. Perhaps I do not have the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I know we are, we are so slow to, to even give some space to that thought that we might not even be Christians at all. My friends, far better to discover it this morning here than to discover it when you stand before the Lord of heaven and earth whose all-seeing eye can see into your heart and who knows the truth of what you profess and what you really are. My friends, my last point of application is experience. Experience is such a tricky thing because experience is so close to us. The experiences that we have in the life of a Christian are so precious to us, but they can deceive us. See, there, there's, there's a, there's, it's such a fine line to walk here, right? There's such a balance to be had here because on the one side, we certainly don't want to throw out all experience. That would be foolish. I mean, religion is an experiential thing, isn't it? It's a thing that really matters. It's, it's a deeply personal and precious thing to us. But on the other hand, my friends, there are those who look for experiences and they build their faith and their salvation on those experiences. Well, you know, when I was 15, I, and they tell you a story. Again, a deeply personal story to them, a very precious story. And I would in no wise want to, want to denigrate somehow that story. We all have a story, right? But you can't build your faith or your salvation on that. When you stand before God, you can only say, Lord, the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is my only hope. And on that, I take my stand. Now, experience is a big part of our Christian life, but let's understand it properly. And I think this passage, this story that we have here in Acts 19 can help us do that. These men too had an experience, but Paul had to say, you misunderstand. It's this way and not that way. Well, my friends, we'll leave the sermon there.
and pray that God would uh, give us to be honest with ourselves as we seek to answer that question of the indwelling of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives. Shall we pray? Lord, a difficult question that you've placed before us today. And Lord, I pray that uh, whatever our station in life may be, and no matter how long, Lord, we may have uh, professed to be disciples of Christ, that this morning, Lord, we would lay it all aside, that we would place our hearts before you, before your all-seeing eye. And we would say with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts within. Lead me in the way of everlasting. As the psalmist said, Lord, I pray that you'd give us repentance for those areas of our life where we have not displayed that love that is the fruit of the Spirit. And that where we see the fruit of the Spirit in our life, Lord, and grant that we would not deny that either, that where we do see the fruit of your working in our life, that we would be thankful for it. That we would be in earnest prayer, O God, that you would strengthen our faith and that you would strengthen all these gifts of the Spirit which we can receive from your hand. Lord, we do pray for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. They are dear people, Lord. They are your children. And they do a great deal of work in this world. They are very zealous in the mission fields. We pray, Lord, that just as Apollos of old, that you would teach them the truth of the word of God. And that they would not teach, Lord, things that are not in keeping with your word. But that they would continue to go forth and to herald Christ crucified to a lost, broken, and dark world. Lord, we commit ourselves then into your hands this day and pray that you would bless us and keep us. We pray for our brother, Lord, as he will preach this evening. Will you give him also, Lord, your spirit, so that he might proclaim Christ also here in this congregation to our edification. And bless me too, Lord, as I go elsewhere. We pray for safe travels, and we pray, Lord, that again you would hold us up and give us to preach to your glory. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal to number 391. 391, we'll sing the four verses of 391. Breathe on me, breath of God. And what follows in the four verses of 391 in the blue hymnal?
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.